listening to Trojan War, the podcast, history's most awesome epic. This is episode number nine in the series. Today's episode is titled, Iphigenia. So welcome back to Trojan War, the podcast. This is episode number nine in the series. Now, this particular episode is named after a girl, a a 14-year-old girl. Her name was Iphigenia. More on her in a moment. Now, if you'll recall where we left things at the end of the preceding episode, well, Agamemnon has now finally assembled everything he needs in order to sail across the Aegean Sea and invade the city of Troy. He has his 100,000 soldiers, his men-at-arms, the world's largest coalition army. He he has built 1,000 boats to, to sail those men across the Aegean Sea. And the critical leadership of the mission is now in place. He, he, he's assembled Odysseus, the cleverest, the wisest, the wiliest of the Greeks as his, as the brains of the operation. He, he is finally located and brought to the beach the Achilles, history's most dangerous, glorious, and incidentally gorgeous killing machine. Uh, Ajax, another great fighter, is there. All the other warlords are there. His brother Menelaus, anxious to go rescue his poor wife Helen from the arms of Paris, is there. And, and the fleet has reached the day where it is finally, finally, finally ready to set sail and depart across the Aegean Sea. It should be an easy five days sail to Troy. The winds in the Mediterranean always, always, always blow from the west to the east. So the plan was simple. Uh, Row out of the protective bay at the port of Aulis, where the fleet was being assembled, uh, uh, raise the great sails and five easy days later land on the long sweeping sand beaches of Troy invade the city and everybody would be back home again within two to three weeks at most. That was the plan. So Agamemnon, the night before the fleet was due to sail, had had assembled a huge podium down by the shore and and called in all 100,000 men-at-arms. And and each of the warlords had stood in that podium and and made a dramatic, theatrical, inspirational speech catering to their particular demographic, citing whatever reasons those warlords believed their foot soldiers need to hear to to, to put into them the fear in their belly necessary for this military expedition. And, and, And finally, after all the other warlords had spoken... Agamemnon suddenly raised the height of the podium a little bit, stood up, and and delivered a culminating speech, uh, justifying in the minds of everybody the, well, Agamemnon's trumped-up reason for the invasion, the rescue of poor Helen, and the return of her to her poor, long-suffering husband, Menelaus. And and after all the speeches have been said and done, the, the Greeks struck camp, loaded the boats, and at dawn the next morning, a hundred thousand boats rowed out of the harbor at Aulis and into the heart of the Aegean Sea, five days away from Troy. And that, of course, is where disaster struck. It wouldn't be a truly epic story if, if everything went according to plan. So we, we need a disaster. And disaster struck the moment that the Greek boats raised their huge single great sails. They they pulled in the oars, they raised the sails, and the winds, which up until that very instant in time had been blowing as winds in the Mediterranean always did from west to east, well, the moment those great sails were raised, the winds suddenly shifted direction. A 180-degree shift in direction, in fact, and the winds began to blow from east to west with, with a ferocity and 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 a violence and a force which was well it made any possible form of sailing completely impossible uh, whatever was blowing those winds was unnatural agamemnon immediately realized there was a problem as did all the other commanders in their boats the, the great sails were were pulled down before the boats were were blown or smashed against rocks and and it looked as though the fleet wasn't going to be able to move forward 
some of the more intrepid of the commanders of the of the boat, some of the more daring do of the warlords thought, well, we will just use oars. Instead, we will row against the wind to Troy. So they they ordered their banks of rowers to pull out the oars and they tried to row against the wind. But the harder they rowed against the wind, the higher the winds raised and they were making no forward progress at all. In fact, they were they were being blown dangerously backward into the into potentially the western reaches of the Mediterranean. So realizing there was nothing they could do but abandon the day's effort at launching invasion Trojan storm, Agamemnon had sent a signal out to the assembled fleet and they had all, well, with their tails between their legs, I suppose, rowed back into the protective harbor of Aulis and beached their boats. It was hardly an auspicious start to the greatest amphibious invasion in history. Uh, Agamemnon reasoned, well, that was just a freak storm. We'll, we'll, we'll try again tomorrow. But it was a royal pain in the butt for everybody involved because it meant that the boats had to be partially unloaded. A, a new tent city to accommodate 100,000 soldiers had to be partially rebuilt. Cook fires had to be rebuilt. And, and the whole thing was just really, really, really annoying. It's like packing for your vacation and getting the whole minivan loaded and then, well, having to delay the vacation for 20 24 hours and realizing, well, we need the minivan for other things and having to unpack the freaking vacation only to start over again the next morning. But they did, minus all the inspirational speeches this time. The, the next morning, the Greeks simply uh, reloaded up their 100,000 their 100, men onto their 1,000 boats and rowed, in, rowed out of the harbor of Aulis into relatively calm winds blowing in the right direction. That is until the moment that the Greek fleet raised their great sails. And the moment, of course, that the Greek fleet raised their great sails, the, the winds in the Mediterranean did an abrupt 180-degree turn again and began to blow with incredible, unrelenting ferocity from east to west, pushing the Greek fleet away from Troy, not towards it. And once again, Agamemnon reluctantly had a, to give out the order of take down the sails, roll back into the safety of the harbor of Aulis. We need to preserve the integrity of the fleet. Well, ladies and gentlemen, to, to make an epically long story somewhat shorter, I, I, I'll dispense with the next eight days of attempts, but every day was the very, very same thing. Uh, relatively calm, favorable winds until the moment that the great sails were raised, and, and then implacable winds blowing directly against the Greek fleet. And by the end of 10 days, even the most avowed atheist inside of that Greek army Every one of the soldiers agreed that it was some deity, some Olympian god behind this sudden shift in long-established weather patterns in the Mediterranean Sea. And, and Agamemnon realized a god is thwarting my efforts to invade Troy. So Agamemnon had called in his priests. He, he, had, he had said, you can see what's happening here. Now, I have three questions, priests. Question number one, which deity is, is blocking the winds? Which deity is thwarting my efforts to sail to Troy? Uh, question number two, why is that particular deity doing it? And, and question number three, the burning question, of course, is, and how can I appease that deity and get the winds to blow in the proper direction again? Well, he turned to the priests, he posed his questions, and, and the priests departed. They went off to their priestly section of the camp, and the priests did their priestly discernment thing. Some hours later, they were back at the tent of Agamemnon, who had assembled the other warlords at his sides, and Agamemnon said, well, what have you got to report? And here, folks, is where things get a little bit, well, well fuzzy inside of the storyline. Uh, the priests actually agreed initially. They, they concurred on the deity responsible for the unfortunate weather change. Uh, they all agreed that the deity who was blocking the favorable winds was an Olympian goddess. Her, her name was Artemis. Uh, Artemis was actually one of the 12 great Olympian goddesses. She was the goddess of the hunt. And it was Artemis, the priests all agreed, who had decided that the winds were not going to blow favorably. Well, that was fine. Agamemnon then turned to the priests and inquired, what have I done? How have, how have we, how have I offended the goddess of Artemis? We make all the sacrifices. What has gone wrong here, priests? And, and here the priests were all in total disagreement with each other. Essentially, there were three different camps, three different hypotheses, if you will, on how Artemis had been offended by the Greeks. And, and, and the first group of priests said, well, here's what happened, Agamemnon. You're 
your soldiers have been have been hunting for the last few months, uh, attempting to provision uh, the fleet for the five day sail across the Mediterranean Sea to Troy, and and so they've been off hunting inside of the forests. And these priests pointed out that some of Agamemnon's men had stumbled into a forest glade sacred to the goddess Artemis and had slaughtered, hunted some deer inside of that glade and brought them back, uh, pickled them and put them into a barrel. And and Artemis was essentially angry at this. Uh, essentially, these men were doing the effect of uh, hunting out of season without a license and a game preserve. And, and Artemis was very, very upset with this. So she determined that she would punish the Greeks uh, for violating her forest, her happy hunting grounds and her deer. Uh, so that was theory number one. Uh, other priests so weren't so sure about that. They argued that they thought Artemis's uh, grudge or vendetta against the Greeks was much more personal and directed precisely at Agamemnon himself. And, and, and what they argued is that a few days earlier, Agamemnon had actually been on a hunting trip himself in, in, in quite legitimate hunting areas, not inside of a designated no-hunt area. And, and during that hunt, Agamemnon had had some success. It brought down some rather large animal and brought them back to the camp. And, and Agamemnon then flushed with the blood glory of the hunt and possibly a little bit deep into the Retsina had had uh, bragged in front of other men that he, Agamemnon, was a great hunter. In fact, even greater than the goddess Artemis herself. And that particular boast had piqued the uh, the wrath of the goddess Artemis, who had then decided to demonstrate to Agamemnon that she was much more powerful than he, king of kings, would ever be. Hence the unfortunate change in direction of the winds. It was personal, the priest said. Artemis is angry at you, Agamemnon. You must quit boasting like that. And uh, But then there was a final and third group of priests, uh, the mystics, I suppose, among the priests. And, and and the mystics among the priests, or those with future clairvoyance, I suppose, had presented a very troubling picture to Agamemnon. They had said that Artemis was blocking the winds from blowing as punishment to Agamemnon for uh, for crimes and horrors and, and, and terrible, terrible, terrible blasphemies, which, well, Agamemnon was fated to commit sometime in his future. So this was some form of advanced punishment for future deeds, which which the poor king was fated to do, of which he did not yet know. Well, whatever the case, when Agamemnon listened to the three priests, he, he needed to move on to the practical matter of, well, how do I appease the goddess Artemis? What is it that she wants? And unfortunately, in this respect, all priests were singing from the same regrettable song sheet. They they concurred, they direly concurred that Artemis, in order to change the winds back into a proper blowing direction for invading Troy, required of Agamemnon a particular sacrifice. Well, Agamemnon said, well, that's easy enough. What, what does the goddess require? I, I have lambs, I, I have oxen. If she's really insistent, I, I will sacrifice a horse. What is it that she needs? And the priest said, said that Artemis needed a sacrifice of a somewhat different nature. And they went on to explain to Agamemnon and the assembled warlords that what Artemis required was that Agamemnon, king of kings, sacrifice his own daughter, his 14-year-old daughter, her name was Iphigenia. You need to kill her, the priest said. Sacrifice her on the, god, on the altar to the goddess Artemis, or the winds will never, ever again change direction. Well, Agamemnon's first response to this information was, was complete shock. The, folks, the prohibitions against human sacrifice were were absolute inside of Bronze Age Greek society. You did not do this. And, and the prohibitions against killing your own children were just as absolute. So what, what Artemis was requiring of, of Agamemnon was, was just beyond the pale. So it took a moment for Agamemnon to register, but the priests were all quite adamant that this was what Artemis precisely had told them she required. And I think what's telling is after Adam and Agamemnon recovered from his initial shock, it was, it was what he did next. He, he turned to the priests, he turned to the warlords, and in his best king of king voices, he said, the information we have just learned cannot, must not leave this room. 
Do not tell a soul about this. And Agamemnon, the king of kings, had immediately, as any wily politician would, when he had information he didn't know quite how to deal with, had gone into information management and damage control mode. He was he didn't know what the message was going to be, but he was certainly going to be the one that defined and shaped that message. And that meant not letting the common foot soldiers in the Greek army know that Artemis had blocked the winds and more precisely what Artemis wanted in exchange for favorable winds again. So Agamemnon shut the operation down. He said, do not speak about this. I will think about it. Well, the priests had left his tent, the warlords had left his tent, and, and Agamemnon had sat down to, to consider the information he had just received and, and, and review his options and review his priorities. And the more Agamemnon considered it, the more he realized that he was essentially faced with a, a fairly absolute and binary decision. Option one, of course, was to was to kill his daughter Iphigenia to sacrifice her to the goddess Artemis and and in exchange for that the clear upside of that was well Agamemnon's fleet would be allowed to sail to Troy where Agamemnon reasoned with his 100,000 men versus Troy's 75,000 soldiers one quick all-day battle would end it and in exchange Agamemnon would win Troy win the glory of being the Greek that brought the greatest city in the world to its knees and Agamemnon of course would become the the dominant king of kings inside of the entire Mediterranean world. So that option was very clear. Kill your daughter for eternal fame, glory, and political power. And and the converse option, of course, was that Agamemnon could disband Operation Trojan Storm, send the coalition army back home to their respective warlord cities, uh, return himself to Mycenae, the, the, the general who had led the most impotent non-invasion in the entire history of the planet, and weather that particular humiliation, and, and, and then weather the political backlash. You remember, of course, that Agamemnon had whipped the Greek public into a lather of righteous hatred and indignation against all things Troy. And the Greek public, due to Agamemnon's propaganda machine, which he'd been feeding now for a full six to eight months, the Greek public were quite insistent that Greece sail across the Aegean Sea and and bring Troy to its knees to rescue poor Helen. And Agamemnon knew now that if he were to disband that mission without punishing Troy and without rescuing Helen, there would be a, a huge political backlash fallout. But there was the upside, of course, and the upside, of course, was that Agamemnon would still have his 14-year-old daughter Iphigenia alive, and possibly, if he spun the story the proper way, he could come out of it looking like a family man, which would be kind of nice, and maybe the Greek public would accept a family man warlord as opposed to a a, a triumphant warlord and an vengeful warlord. Agamemnon wasn't quite sure. But the truth of the matter is he could not make up his mind. Both options appeared appealing in one way and horrifying in another. So Agamemnon, I suppose, did what any of us would do in a similar situation. Who of us in our lives have not been confronted with no-win binary problems where we see no way out? And often, of course, what we all do, self-included, is to, when we face a situation like that, instead of addressing it and making a decision, we just quickly bury our heads deep in the sand and somehow hope if we ignore the problem, it will go away. So that's what Agamemnon did. He he sat on his beach at Aulis inside of his tent. He sulked and he brooded and he did nothing. He, he took no form of action at all and he sulked and he brooded and the days turned into weeks and gradually, gradually, gradually the, uh, the window of opportunity for the Greek fleet to actually sail before winter storms and winds, uh, not brought on by a vengeful goddess, but just brought on by the natural course of, of environmental and climate and weather systems would be a problem. And if Agamemnon missed that window of invasion opportunity, then he knew he would be sitting on the beach at Aulis for another six months until he could sail sometime in the late spring. But Agamemnon couldn't decide what to do, so Agamemnon sat and waited and waited and waited. Until the day when Odysseus, cleverest of the warlords, stepped into Agamemnon's tent. And Odysseus was there to bring troubling news to Agamemnon. He he made sure there were no other servants with prying ears inside of the tent, inside of earshot. And Odysseus explained to Agamemnon that there was a new development inside of the Greek army. The coalition, Odysseus explained, was beginning to fray somewhat at the edges. At roll call that morning, Odysseus had noted the absence of 200 men. Uh, 200 men, 200 foot soldiers, had deserted Operation Trojan Storm in the night. And Odysseus pointed out to Agamemnon that, well, 200 in an army of 100,000 was nothing to be worrying about. But Odysseus went on to explain to Agamemnon that 
given his understanding of human nature and given the way that these sort of desertion problems increased exponentially as opposed to arithmetically, that if it was 200 today, it would be 400 tomorrow and 1,600 a day by the rest of the week. And Odysseus went on to explain to Agamemnon that if he sat and he waited and brooded on the beaches of Aulis without a plan of action for very much longer, uh, the plan of action would be determined for him because there would be no coalition army to lead. And so Odysseus said to Agamemnon, it's decision time, Agamemnon, you you need to decide what to do today. One way or the other, uh, we cannot continue. And further, Agamemnon, there's a problem. The word of the decision you've been left with, the the story of the goddess, the winds, and and the goddess's price, the the sacrifice of your daughter Iphigenia, has, has, has somehow leaked out, Agamemnon. Every foot soldier in the army knows about it now. Well, Agamemnon was furious. How did that happen? He asked Odysseus. I, I, I distinctly ordered that, that there be no leaks on this. What do you think it was? And Odysseus, smiling with his fingers quietly crossed behind his back, had said, I, I have no idea whatsoever, my lord. I have no idea who leaked the information, but the soldiers know it now, and, and, and that's what's forcing your hand, Agamemnon. Well, Agamemnon turned to Odysseus and said, what would you suggest? And, and Odysseus, of course, who we know desperately wanted nothing more than to get back home to his island kingdom of Ithaca with his wife Penelope and, and his own one-year-old kid. Odysseus had seized the opportunity. He said, Agamemnon, nobody is going to blame you if you, if you disband Operation Trojan Storm now. I mean, you're up against a goddess, Agamemnon, and, and what the goddess is requiring you to do is to kill your child is a blasphemy in, in the sights of the goddess. So, Agamemnon... Just go home to Mycenae, uh, disband the mission. Uh, the propaganda can be that you love your daughter and you're unwilling to commit this, uh, this blasphemy of a human sacrifice and killing your child, and, and, and Agamemnon will help you. We will spin this as Agamemnon the family man. It'll work, Agamemnon. It, it, it's, it's not glory, but, but it's something, and you do have a lovely daughter. Well, Odysseus pleaded and begged because, of course, it was in Odysseus's best interests to have the operation disbanded and get to go home to his wife and his new child as quickly as possible. But during his brooding, Agamemnon had actually made up his mind. No, he said, I am going to Troy. And if the price is killing my daughter, then so be it. That is the price. So the problem, Odysseus, Agamemnon went on to explain, is how do I get my daughter here to the beach at Aulis? Because if I tell my wife what I intend for her, well, my wife will run away and hide my daughter somewhere. How do I get her here, Odysseus? And Odysseus, the, the pragmatist, the eternal pragmatist and the wiliest and most clever of men, when, when he realized that his, his plan A, which was to disband Operation Trojan Storm completely was a non-starter with Agamemnon, well, Odysseus had immediately shifted gears to plan B. And plan B, of course, was to get that girl to the beach, get her sacrificed, and get the boats across to Troy as quickly as possible so that Odysseus could go home to his family. He went to work in the plan. He thought it through for a little while. He came back to Agamemnon's tent and he said, here's what you need to do, Agamemnon. Agamemnon listened carefully to his Odysseus's instructions and put the plan into effect. They sent a message from the beach at Aulis to Agamemnon's kingdom in Mycenae to Agamemnon's wife, a woman named Timnestra. Uh, the messenger got to Mycenae, uh, found Agamemnon's wife in her waiting room, and, and recited Agamemnon's message. The message sounded something like this. Rejoice, my wife. Good news. I, Agamemnon, have found a marriage match for our daughter, Iphigenia. Iphigenia is to be married to that greatest, most glorious, and gorgeous of killing machines, the Achilles himself. Dispatch Iphigenia with all the bridal information and clothing that she needs for the ceremony. She will be married in two days' time before the boats sail for Troy. That was the end of the message. 
Well, Clem Timnestra, mum, received the message and, well, mum was actually overjoyed. Uh, she knew that her husband would be selecting a, a, an appropriate husband for her 14-year-old daughter any day soon. And, well, well, you could do an awful lot worse than, than marrying the Achilles. He, he, he was young, he was charming, he was glorious, he was gorgeous, he was famous. It was a perfect match for her daughter. So uh, Clem Timnestra called 14-year-old Iphigenia into, into her quarters and she said, daughter, we found you, your, your father's found you a husband. And, and Iphigenia, of course, having no choice over this and fearful that possibly her father would have found some elderly or senior citizen warlord who had recently lost a wife and was owed a favor and that Iphigenia was going to find herself married to some creepy old man over 40 or something like that. Well, when Iphigenia had heard that her father had selected for her the Achilles, well, Iphigenia was simply over the moon. Like every 14-year-old girl and an awful lot of the 14-year-old boys inside of Greece, well, Achilles, the Achilles, and the stories of the Achilles, and, and the, the, the building myth and the legend of the Achilles, well, it, 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 it filled their daydreams and an awful lot of their night dreams too. And, and now Iphigenia's dreams were going to come true. She was going to be the bride of history's most glorious and gorgeous and, and dangerous killing machine. She was over the moon. Well, mother sat down with daughter. They they prepared the bridal dress. They they prepared the, the adornments for the wedding ceremony. Uh, then mother had a fairly long and difficult talk with her daughter about, well, things about weddings that uh, being a Bronze Age sheltered princess had never even occurred to poor Iphigenia. And, and after she adjusted and reconciled to some of those shocking realities, well, Iphigenia was ready to leave. Uh, Clinton Esther bundled her daughter up with some ladies-in-waiting, gave her daughter a hug, said goodbye, and sent her daughter Iphigenia to the beach at Aulis to her wedding, to her fate. And two days later, Iphigenia arrived at the Greek camp. Well, by this time, of course, under Agamemnon's control and approval, the story of Everything had been leaked to the Greek army. Uh, the Greek army now knew that Agamemnon was intending to sacrifice his daughter uh, in order to appease the god Artemis and get the winds to move. And, and, and you might be wondering, folks, how the common Greek foot soldiers, 100,000 men in the army, felt about that particular thing that was about to be done. And the only report I can give you, the only thing that we know from, from the historians who've written on this and the accounts we have, is that uh, the, the army had absolutely no problems with, with the sacrifice or murder of the girl at all. They, there were 100,000 men in the beach. They were there alone. The, the bloodlust and the glory and the desire for war was, uh, was percolating through their veins. And if, if the price of getting the operation off the ground and moving was the slaughter of a 14-year-old girl, well, then so be it. There, there was nobody that had any sympathy for the girl at all. They just wanted to get to Troy and get the mission over with and win glory and wealth. The only thing that Agamemnon left out of his controlled leak to the Greek army was, well, the use of the name of Achilles as the bait to get his daughter to the beach. Uh, Odysseus had taken Agamemnon aside and said, look, uh, Achilles will be perfect bait. It, it will certainly get Iphigenia to the beach for, for a wedding, but we're not wanting to tell Achilles that we're using him as bait. Achilles is fairly touchy about his honor, Agamemnon, and we haven't consulted him in using his name as bait. It might be best if if he's just quietly left out of the loop on this. Uh, uh, otherwise, who knows what he might say or do to you, my king. So, uh, so Achilles, uh, oblivious to the fact that Agamemnon had announced a, a, a wedding that he was going to be engaged in, Achilles just carried on as normal warlords. Iphigenia arrived at the beach. Um, uh, her father greeted her. Ginny came up to her father, threw her arms around her dad, said, thank you, thank you, thank you, dad. You're the most wonderful father ever. What a perfect marriage match. I'm so excited to be here. And, and Agamemnon heart briefly broke for just a moment before he he remembered why he needed to kill his daughter and the glories of Troy sort of filled his senses instead. And then Agamemnon turned around to his daughter and well, he had some explaining to do because Iphigenia, of course, wanted to meet Achilles. She had never met him. She'd only heard of him. And she said, when will I meet my, when will I meet my husband-to-be, father? Can I meet him now? And, and, and Odysseus, stepping in very smoothly and silkily, had turned around to Iphigenia and lied, explained that that 
Iphigenia was not going to actually see her husband Achilles until the culmination of the wedding ceremony the next morning. And, and that way would be much more romantic if the two of them hadn't set eyes on each other until the moment of the ceremony itself. And that was going to happen in the morning. So the girl was just going to have to be patient. And Iphigenia thought that sounded like a wonderful idea. And then she had one other little bit of confusion. Of course, since Agamemnon had put the plan of the sacrifice into place, he had been having his soldiers in the army build a massive wooden tower where the sacrifice slash wedding ceremony was going to take place. And and this tower sort of looked like a large wooden pyramid with, with um, sort of steps up the side. So you could actually ascend to the top of this. And at the top of the pyramid, there was, there was a flat platform, which was, well, officially where Iphigenia was going to meet Achilles and was, well, in all reality, where Agamemnon was going to sacrifice his daughter to the goddess. So the soldiers are well at work in building this tower, and Iphigenia, who had never seen anything like it, turned around and inquired as to its meaning. And Agamemnon had come to the rescue and explained that not only was his daughter going to be marrying history's most glorious and wonderful man, Achilles, but his daughter was going to have the largest wedding in the entire history of the planet. 100,000 men at arms were actually going to be witness to this event. And if a Janai, of course, responded as any 14-year-old girl would, and in the throes of the excitement of this huge, wonderful wedding, she had thrown her arms once again around dad and proclaimed in front of Odysseus and the other awkward warlords that Agamemnon, her father, was the most wonderful father and dad that any girl could ever possibly hope or dream for. Well, at that point, uh, Odysseus had graciously dispatched Iphigenia back to her tent and said, your father will come and pick you up in the morning and the wedding will happen at dawn. And folks, everything would have proceeded wonderfully and according to plan, or at least as wonderfully and according to plan as as things can proceed when the when the plan is for a father to murder slash sacrifice his own child to to a demanding God. But something happened that night that thwarted the plan. And it's really not a surprise it happened. If Ejani was a 14-year-old girl, a, a, a hopeless romantic, well, she was a 14-year-old girl, a hopeless romantic, and, and, and she was so excited at the prospect of this huge, wonderful, glorious wedding the next day, and, and of this Achilles, who, of course, she, she had been dreaming about and hearing about and everybody knew about. And, well, sometime late, late, late in the evening, Ejani just couldn't resist. She, she stole out of her bridal tent, unseen by her ladies-in-waiting, and, and, and found herself in the wee hours of the morning in the tent of her husband-to-be, Achilles. And if Iphigenia, flushed with excitement, uh, maybe more than a little bit curious about some of the information her mother had provided about some of the things that happened inside of marriages and, and and reasoning that well I am I am going to be married to him in the morning so how could anything that happens tonight possibly be wrong anyway well if Ejenia had snuck into Achilles tent and and thrown herself romantically and passionately into the sleeping warlord's arms but things hadn't gone quite as if Ejenai had fantasized that they might from that point forward. Achilles had woken up with a start, and then when he saw the girl, had shown absolutely no interest in her whatsoever. Now, you need to understand, of course, when you are history's most glorious and famous bachelor, and you're eligible, and, and you're as glorious and gorgeous as Achilles, well... I, Interruptions to your nightly sleep by optimistic visitors, men and women, was a fairly commonplace occurrence in Achilles' life, and and it was actually, frankly, getting a little bit tiresome. I mean, a warlord, after all, does need his sleep, so Achilles showed no interest in Ephegeni at all. She was just another midnight suitor, and he, he, he turned around. He was about to dismiss her and tell her to get lost, scram, when Ephegeni had burst into tears and, and tearfully explained, but do you not love me? Do you not find me attractive? husband. And, well, the word husband had rather caught Achilles' curiosity. Uh, 
He sat the girl down, and over the next half hour, she tearfully explained that she was to marry him in the morning, and that that was what that huge altar in the beach was being constructed for, and and did and did he not want her? And, and through her tears, Achilles grew more and more and more and more enraged, as angry as he, as he realized what had been planned without his involvement or consent. Uh, finally, after half an hour, he had briskly picked up Ephigenia, marched her back to her bridal tent, turned around and said, You sit there. You stay there, wife. I will come back and explain this to you later. And, and Achilles, in a mounting rage, ha- had marched across the beach to the tent of Agamemnon, king of kings, burst into the tent, shaken Agamemnon awake, and uh, demanded an explanation for the entire event. Well, Agamemnon didn't dissemble or lie. He, he, he turned around to Achilles and he, he confessed that he had used Achilles's name and the prospect of a wedding to Achilles as the necessary bait to, to get his, to his wife to release the daughter and to get his daughter himself to come to the beach for the sacrifice, which was going to happen in the morning. And, and Agamemnon assured Achilles that, well, he wasn't expected to actually mount the, mount the sacrificial altar and go through with the ceremony. And in the morning, now that he had his daughter where he needed her, then Achilles could just discreetly leave the scene. And, and his purpose in the story was over. But Achilles flew into a rage. He was furious at Agamemnon, and well, I really wish, folks, I could tell you that Achilles' rage was precipitated by by some form of empathy or compassion or concern for the poor 13-year-old girl who had been deceived and, and in the morning was going to be butchered, but that's simply not the truth of it. Achilles didn't seem particularly concerned about the fate of the girl. What Achilles was particularly enraged about was Agamemnon's use of his name without permission. In a sense, this was a Bronze Age copyright issue. Achilles turned around and said, you have besmirched the name of the Achilles. You have entered my name into a contractual obligation and pronounced the obligation without consulting me on it. You, Agamemnon, have dishonored me. And, and at this point, Agamemnon realized that things were getting intense in the tent. He, he, he motioned to his servant, and, and a few minutes later, fortunately, Odysseus arrived in the scene to, uh, to smooth out things between Agamemnon, king of kings, and, and the most dangerous and angry of warlords, Achilles. And, and Odysseus, discerning what had happened and how Achilles had obviously found out and was now in a rage, did his diplomatic best to, to soothe the wounded ego of the Achilles. He, he, in his best voice, he turned to Achilles and, and charmingly explained that, uh, well, of course, Achilles, Agamemnon had to use your name, but it was not out of disrespect or dishonor to you. It, it was because your name, Achilles, is so great and so well known that Agamemnon knew it was the only name that would suffice to, to draw his daughter to the beach. He used your name, Achilles, because your name is the greatest. It is the name that would work for this when no other name possibly would. And, and Achilles, accepting the flattery, began to exhale a little bit. It didn't come to blows, but Achilles was still in a rage. He, he, he turned to Agamemnon and, and said, you still shouldn't have done it, and heaped onto Agamemnon some epic, epic insults and, and, and verbal abuse. He called Agamemnon a drunkard. He called him a dog face. He, he, he called Agamemnon a quivering, deer-hearted coward. And, and only Odysseus's offices kept things from coming to blows between the two warlords. But Eventually, Odysseus maintained the peace and he said, Achilles, go along with it till morning. Just stay in your tent. It'll be over with soon. And then we'll sail to Troy. And there, Achilles, you will be able to earn everlasting glory and fame. And and any damage that Agamemnon has inadvertently done to your name now will be more than compensated for when, when the two of you reach Troy. And Achilles, you will have a chance to demonstrate to the world your full glory. And, and Achilles, with a final glare at Agamemnon, had stormed out of Agamemnon's tent, back down to his own. Well, morning came. Agamemnon dressed in his, in his finest robes and quietly walked at dawn to the tent of his 14-year-old daughter, Iphigenia. She had been up all night, excited at the prospects of the morning's wedding. The ladies-in-waiting had her resplendent in a beautiful white dress, adorned with gold and jewels, and, and Agamemnon took his daughter's arm, and the two of them began to walk hand in hand through the Greek camp towards a huge wedding tower assembled down on the beach. Iphigenia uh, was, well, she was, in, she was in a state of 
sweetly naive, anticipatory bliss. She, she, she kept stopping and, 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 and laughing and giggling and hugging her father Agamemnon and proclaiming him the best dad ever and this is the most wonderful day in her life and, and, and listening to Agamemnon, all of her girlfriends back, back in Mycenae that would, would just die of jealousy if they could see this wedding that her father had put on for her now and, and, and in this fashion, the two of them approached the tower. Well, the, the Greek soldiers, the entire foot soldier contingent of the Greek army, all 100,000 of them, of course, knowing what was going to happen at the top of that tower, had, had decided to dignify the occasion as best they could by putting on their best bronze armor and polishing it till it glowed. And then uh, silently, perhaps possibly, hopefully realizing for the first time the, the actual magnitude about what the price of invading Troy was actually going to be, the, uh, the Greek army had assembled and circled the, the wedding sacrificial tower. Uh, they got to the base of the tower and hand in hand, father and daughter began to ascend towards the top where daughter was quite sure the husband, her Achilles, was waiting romantically for her. One third of the way up the tower, Agamemnon felt faint and he, he slipped and stumbled on one of the steps. Uh, Iphigenia turned around. She, she gently helped her father back to his feet again and, and playfully and kindly chastised him. She said, Father, you're not the one that's supposed to be nervous today. It's my big day, not yours, Dad. It will be okay. And Iphigenia, holding her father, had helped him up the next three steps. They walked two-thirds of the way up the platform, and again, Agamemnon temporarily stumbled. Perhaps even for Agamemnon, the magnitude of the deed he was about to do was beginning to, to, to actually break through his consciousness. And, and Agamemnon stumbled again, and Jeannie turned around playfully, laughed at her father, gave him a big hug right there on the platform and said, Dad, it'll be fine. This is so wonderful, Father. You are the best dad ever. I, I only wish that Mother was here to watch the whole thing. And then the two of them had proceeded towards the top. Well, when they reached the top of the tower and... Jeannie took her first step, the step that would reveal her waiting husband Achilles to her. There was, of course, the inevitable shock in Iphigenia's eyes when there was nothing at the top of that tower, no, no Achilles waiting. And Iphigenia, in innocent confusion, had turned to her father Agamemnon and said, Father, where is Achilles? Where is my husband, Father? Why is he not here? And Agamemnon had stayed ominously silent and Iphigenia had then again looked towards the top of the tower and all she could see, of course, was a large round flat stone and a knife sitting on that stone. And the girl coming from a God's fearing family that routinely made sacrifices to the gods on just such platforms suddenly recognized that she was not standing on a wedding platform, but was indeed standing at the top of a sacrificial altar. In confusion and still not comprehending what was about to happen, Ginny had turned around to Agamemnon, her dad, and said, Father, this this is a place of sacrifice, Father, but Father, I am confused. Where is the lamb, Father? Where is the lamb? And those were the girl's final words. Agamemnon picked up the dagger, raised it high in the air, and plunged it into his 14-year-old daughter's throat. Her heart continued to beat, and as a consequence, blood, Ginny's blood, Iphigenia's blood, sprayed everywhere on the top of that altar. It, it soaked to the girl, it soaked to the white wedding dress, it, it, it covered the father, Agamemnon, in blood. And then Iphigenia died on the sacrificial altar. Agamemnon raised the blood-soaked dagger in the air. He looked up to the Mount, Mount Olympus to the gods and he screamed into the sky. He said, you've got your sacrifice, Artemis. Now bring me my winds, I have a city to burn. And the army, which had been silent, roared its approval. They were going to Troy. They were going to glory. Agamemnon retreated. He traced his steps down to the base of the sacrificial tower. He took a torch and he set the wooden tower on flames. 
The winds changed direction immediately, and a, a stiff breeze out of the west blowing east towards Troy picked up, and uh, the breeze grew greater and greater and greater as the morning went on. It fanned the flames, and the sacrificial tower began to burn. Sometime about an hour later, the flames reached the body of the 14-year-old girl, and Iphigenia began to roast in that sacrificial fire. A black, greasy cloud of ash rose up from the body of the girl, and the black, greasy cloud, what remained of Iphigenia, caught the easterly blowing winds, and those winds blew that morning across the Aegean Sea. In the city of Troy, the old king Priam was standing on the battlements with his, his own teenage daughter, a, a girl of Iphigenia's age. Her, her name was Cassandra. He, as the two of them stood there looking out to sea, a greasy, black, ashy rain began to descend on the city of Troy. And maybe that, ladies and gentlemen, is enough story for one particularly troubling and unfortunate episode of Trojan War, the podcast. So I'm going to leave you with a couple of options. Now, if if that's enough for the day, then in a moment you can gracefully say your goodbyes and head off to my website, uh, trojanwarpodcast.com, where I promise you the, the, the next episode, episode number 10, will not be quite so grim. On the other hand, you might actually want to stick around for the post-story commentary, even if it's not your normal or usual pattern, because I'm going to spend some time in that post-story commentary reviewing some of the alternate versions of the Iphigenia story, and some of them you might find offer you at least some form of consolation. So if you're going, I'll be silent in a moment, and you can make a quiet and sorrowful retreat with the girl's sacrifice in your mind, or if you choose, you can stick around for the post-story commentary. And so, the Iphigenia story. Well, I, I'll, I'll confess up front, it's not a very fun or pleasant story to, to have to recount as a teller, but it's, it's a critical story and an important, important part of our plot, so I, I just couldn't in good conscience leave it out. What's interesting about the Iphigenia story is, is the different versions of the story that are floating around out there up until this day. And, and as I've mentioned many times before in, in forming this podcast and putting together the episodes, one of the challenges that I've faced as your storyteller has been making decisions on which particular version of a story makes the most sense into the larger story arc that I'm developing and, and trying to put together for you as my listeners. Well, the Iphigenia story we know is ancient. Now, it's not ancient enough that Homer knows about it. Uh, Homer putting the Iliad into words in about 700 BCE makes no mention at all in the Iliad of Agamemnon's sacrifice of his daughter. And there, there are myriad places in the Iliad where making mention of such a sacrifice or of Agamemnon's rift with Achilles, well, the story would have made perfect sense. So the chances are the Iphigenia story didn't develop till some time after Homer had actually penned the Iliad. The first written version of what we have is actually from about 458 BCE, and, and, and that's the Greek uh, playwright Aeschylus, and, and he writes a play aptly titled Agamemnon, and, and in his play, which recounts the story I just told you, uh, Agamemnon willingly, and even to a certain degree, gleefully uh, butchers his own daughter Iphigenia in order to change the directions of the wind, because Agamemnon believes that he has no choice, and that fate requires that he go and, and sack the city of Troy. And, and that's a version of the story that I largely chose to, to follow in my presentation to you this morning. But what's really, really interesting is that just a few years after Aeschylus wrote his play called Agamemnon, another Greek playwright named Euripides came along about 50 years later, and Euripides wrote a play, and his play is called Iphigenia at Aulis, and, and so it's very clear what his play is about, the story I just told you. And Euripides does completely, completely different things with the plot. Um, the first minor difference, which is kind of interesting, is in Euripides' play, Agamemnon just cannot make up his mind on whether or not to kill his daughter, and in Euripides' play, Agamemnon sends messages 
messages saying, send her to Wallace, and then sending other messages saying, no, don't send her to Wallace. And, and he, he dithers back and forth before ultimately realizing and feeling that if he doesn't actually sacrifice his daughter, the army might turn on him. And so Agamemnon then makes a calculated decision and, and kills Iphigenia. But the critical, critical details about the story and, and the parts of the story which you might find some consolation if you want to believe Euripides' version as opposed to the version of, of, of me, Jeff, my version and Aeschylus's version, is what happens to Iphigenia when she finds out that she's been duped and that Achilles is simply bait to have got her to the port at Aulis where she's going to be sacrificed. Well, in Euripides' play, Iphigenia is immediately shocked and 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 of course, upset by her imminent sacrifice and death, but she almost does an immediate sea change inside of the play, and then she turns around and she announces that she's actually quite glad to be led to the sacrificial altar because this is the only way that the winds will change, and hence the only way which her father's invasion of Troy, this Operation Trojan Storm, will ever get up and off the ground. And and if Iphigenia completely believes her, her her dad's propaganda machine that the Greeks have to sail to Troy because they have to rescue Helen and restore Greek honor, and so Iphigenia voluntarily, the poor fourteen-year-old girl, turns to her father and offers to lay down her life as a sacrifice to appease the gods, such that. Greek honor can be restored and poor Helen can be returned to to her lawful husband Menelaus and and, and it's so Iphigenia becomes a, a voluntary sacrifice and you know it's very very interesting those of you who are attuned to recurring literary archetypes and are attuned to cross-cultural mythological understandings will, will recognize in this particular take on Iphigenia another voluntary child who when a god requires that a father sacrifice his child volunteers to go willingly to that particular sacrifice it's a pretty recurring and ancient pattern inside of the, the story and mythologies and the traditions of many, many, many cultures in the Mediterranean basin. Uh, now, back to the story, of course. Iphigenia goes voluntarily to her sacrifice, but mum, Nestor, is having nothing of it. She uh, she doesn't see anything noble or, or heroic in what her daughter is intending to do. Mum tries to stop it. Uh, mum actually comes to the beach and attempts to stop the sacrifice, but Nestor cannot stop her husband, Agamemnon, from, from killing the girl. So, she watches it happen, uh, hears about it happening, and, and Klimtimnestra vows some form of revenge on her husband Agamemnon, which, well, allows for all kinds of cool sequels and later stories, which I can't afford to tell you now because of plot spoilers. The other really, really cool thing about the Euripides play, and this is likely the thing that will make those of you who are horrified that he actually killed his daughter the happiest, which is in Euripides' play, the sacrifice of Iphigenia takes place off stage. And the only witness to the sacrifice of Iphigenia is actually Agamemnon himself. And and here's what happens in the play. Uh, after Agamemnon sacrifices his daughter off stage, he sends a messenger to his wife, Klimtimnestra, with remarkably good news. And the messenger explains that According to Agamemnon's report, uh, right when he was about to raise the knife in the air and bring it down on his daughter, the, the god had relented and said, no, 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 uh, do, do not kill your child. Kill this animal which I will provide instead. And, and therefore, the messenger explained, uh, well, Iphigenia was never actually killed. Well, Klimtimnestra had asked the obvious question, well, if that's the case and my husband didn't kill her daughter, then where is she now? I see no sign of her. And Agamemnon called in to explain this and said, miracle of miracles, that after the god had spared Iphigenia's life, the god had decided the poor girl had been so traumatized that she deserved some sort of reward. So, so the girl had been whisked off to a distant, luxurious island in the Black Sea, a place called Taurus, and, and that, according to the god, Iphigenia was living happily ever after on that island. So folks, if you were looking for a for a happy ending and if you wanted Iphigenia to live, well, then there you have it. Just read Euripides' play. I, I tend to be a little bit more cynical. I, I, I think that Euripides likely committed the first disnification of a horrible, horrible story to make it more palatable for an audience. And, and if you want me to really pile on my Euripides cynicism, I'll point out that by keeping the most compelling and attractive character, Iphigenia, alive, Euripides allowed himself the opportunity of a sequel, which he indeed produced immediately following Iphigenia at Aulis. Uh, the very next season out came Iphigenia at Taurus. So, so possibly that's why we have the story that we do.
Now, on to Agamemnon and, and some really cool things about this guy. Agamemnon came from a family whose name was Atreus. That was the last name of the family. And, and the house of Atreus, Agamemnon's family, likely is the house inside of world literature, which has the greatest and most miserable and horrific curse associated with it. Uh, every generation of the house of Atreus carries this terrible curse down through the generations. And the curse is, goes from father to son and from son to grandson, down and down and down through the generations. And, and so the Iphigenia episode where Agamemnon slaughters his daughter is only one stage in the particular House of Atreus curse. So, so very quickly, here's how the curse starts out. It's really kind of a cool story. So way back, Agamemnon's great-grandfather was, was a Greek king named Tantalus. And Tantalus had been invited to cater a wedding party to the Olympian gods for some particular reason. And, and, and Tantalus had decided to play a, a rather clever trick on the gods, a very blaspheming trick. But but when Tantalus was putting together the menu for the gods, Tantalus, for, for some reason known only to Tantalus, had decided to butcher, secretly butcher his own his own son, a boy named Pelops, and then barbecue the boy up and, and serve pieces of Pelops, if you will, to the Olympian gods at their feast. Well, one of the Olympian gods, biting into a large chunk of shoulder, had realized that the meat tasted suspiciously not like lamb or oxen, and, and, and the Olympian gods, of course, were, were absolutely horrified and enraged. Uh, as I told you earlier, the killing of human beings and the killing of your own children, and then eating them, of course, were, were, were huge, huge taboos inside of the Bronze Age world. And, and then the additional taboo of it, attempting to serve your child to a god, well, it got Tantalus in a lot of trouble. Uh, for Tantalus, as punishment, the gods created a, a personal and private little mini hell, which consisted of, of, of three things. There, there was Tantalus uh, standing in a pool of water, and, and above the pool of water, there was a tree with delicious-looking low-hanging fruit. And, and the punishment that the gods designed for Tantalus was that Tantalus would be eternally thirsty, but he could not quite reach down far enough to drink the fresh cooling waters in, in this pool of water in which he was going to stand for eternity. And Tantalus would be eternally hungry, but he could not quite reach high enough to grab the fruit. So for, for all eternity, Tantalus stood there thirsty and hungry, if you will, tantalized and not being able to do anything about it. So, so the the gods cursed Tantalus for his blasphemy of killing and attempting to feed his son Pelops to the gods, and and the curse was going to echo down through the generations. But then the gods did something nice. They turned around to Tantalus's boy Pelops, who had inadvertently been partially eaten his shoulder by a goddess, and 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 they had fashioned him. A, they'd brought him back to life, Pelops, and given him a new chance at life. And uh, the Greek god Hephaestus, the blacksmith god, had actually fashioned a brand new shoulder out of ivory for. The, for the boy Pelops. Well, Pelops, um, grateful for this second chance at life, had taken full advantage of the generosity of the gods and immediately gone out and murdered a man as soon as he became a teenager. Uh, Pelops murdered a Greek king because he wanted to marry the Greek king's daughter. So uh, Pelops found a clever way to murder the king. Uh, he challenged the king to a chariot race, and and then Pelops bribed uh, a chariot mechanic to, uh, to rig something with the wheels of the chariot. So when they reached full speed, they collapse and, and the poor Greek king was thrown violently to his death. Um, and then Pelops got the daughter. Now, curiously, Pelops had promised a, a bribe to the chariot mechanic in exchange for helping orchestrate the murder. And Pelops, continuing the horrific tradition of this family, had offered to the chariot mechanic uh, first night privileges to his new virgin daughter bride. Uh, so when he took his bride back to his wedding tent and, and the mechanic arrived, uh, ready to claim his first night privileges, uh, Pelops had lied to the mechanic, killed him and thrown him off a cliff. And the mechanic, plunging to his death, had, had cursed Pelops and his family and his children down through three and four generations. And, and, and the curse not only magnified, but it rather perpetuated. Well, at that stage, Pelops uh, actually got on with the job of producing children with his with with his now princess bride, and uh, Pelops and his bride had two sons. Uh, the older boy's name was Atreus, and and the younger boy's name was Thyestes. Well, when Pelops died, he was now the king of a kingdom called Mycenae, and. Well, the two sons argued over who would become the heir to the throne. Would it be the older brother, um, Atreus, or the younger brother, Thyestes? Well, Thyestes thought, you know, I'm going to try to get an inside track on this. 
this. And, and, and so what Thyestes had done is he had started an illegitimate affair with his big brother, Atreus's wife. Well, well, Atreus had discovered the affair and Atreus had banished Thyestes from the kingdom and Atreus had brooded for a while, but not quite happy that the banishment from the kingdom was sufficient punishment. Atreus had, had sometime later sent a, a letter to his little brother Thyestes and said, Thyestes, all is forgiven after all, family is family. Uh, let's let bygones be bygones. Why don't you and your and your two young sons come visit me at Mycenae and, and you know, we'll have a banquet and well, we'll, we'll bury the hatchet as it were. And, and, and Thyestes naively had thought this was a great idea. So he had arrived at Mycenae at his big brother's palace and Atreus, of course, had chosen to bury the hatchet, uh, not metaphorically, but quite literally into the skulls of, of Thyestes, his brother's two young sons. Uh, Atreus had then perpetuated the, the family's penchant for cannibalism and uh, cooked up the two boys and, and served the two sons uh, to, his, to their father, Thyestes. Well, Thaestes had, had, had chowed down on his boys and then realized what he had done, had, had cursed Atreus and his sons down through to the third and fourth generation, and, and, and the curse magnified and continued. Well, Atreus went on then, uh, the sole owner of the kingdom Mycenae, to, to have two sons of his own. Uh, the eldest son was Agamemnon, and the, uh, and the second son was Menelaus, and, and the curse continued. Menelaus ended up marrying the most beautiful woman in the world. Hardly sounds like a curse, but she immediately turned around, cuckled him, and ran away to, to, to Troy with Paris and started a world war. Um, as to Agamemnon, well, Agamemnon married Clymptimnestra. They, they had a wonderful, lovely daughter, Iphigenia, and then 14 years later, Agamemnon was called upon to murder slash sacrifice his own daughter. Uh, the curse continued down through the generations. Uh, now, given the family penchant for murdering children and furthermore, the family penchant for cooking in their children and eating their children, then there is a very, very final and disturbing element that I cannot resist, but leaving you with towards the end of this post-story commentary. And if you think about it, ladies and gentlemen, we're told in all the myths of Agamemnon and all the stories of him and his daughter that Agamemnon sacrificed his daughter. And you need to recognize that inside of a traditional Greek Bronze Age sacrifice, uh, once a sacrificial animal was killed, it was butchered. And, and then the good parts of the flesh were actually barbecued and eaten by, by the individual who had done the sacrifice. The meat wasn't wasted. It was part of the ritual. So it begs the very clear an obvious question, given the Atreus family DNA and penchant for these things, whether Agamemnon, bad enough that he, he, he killed his daughter Iphigenia, but it raises a distinct possibility that after killing his daughter Iphigenia, Agamemnon had cut her up, uh, barbecued her, and then eaten his daughter before embarking on the war against Troy. Well, needless to say, the family House of Atreus curse didn't stop at this particular point. There was a wife screaming and plotting vengeance, but for me to carry on with any more details of the horrible House of Atreus would be to violate my no-plot spoilers rule. So hang in. When we get to later episodes of Trojan War, the podcast, well, more about the horrible House of Atreus will be revealed for your dining pleasure. So have a least as wonderful a day as you can, given the contents of the last hour of your life. Talk to you again later. Please be sure that you get to TrojanWarPodcast.com where future happier episodes will be waiting for you any day now soon.